So uh, I have a, a letter from a listener, an anonymous letter. Oh. I'm sorry. Can I just pause you there for a second? A physical letter? Oh, no. Oh, an email. Oh, okay. An email. Yes. An e-letter. Ah, okay. Proceed. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it out, all right? Mm-hmm. Dear Anna, Matt, and the other one too. Get the hell. Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> I assume that's a, a spelling mistake. The R and the T are very close together. Excellent. I like this person already. For several months, you've been my privacy pros, my security sidekick. But alas, my ongoing remonstration is with a certain potty mouth member of the comedic combo. Ever the effing and jeffing alongside my news. I'm not even going to get into why a segment named Watchtower Weekly when it only actually occurs every two weeks. <laughs> Good point there. <laughs> to continue my patronage of your podcast, I require that you clean up your act. When describing Facebook's f- latest faux pas, could you not dive into the S-word immediately and instead refer to old Marky Z as a ripe old Belger or an absolute deckhand? <laughs> Points awarded, of course, for creativity. <laughs> So there you have my request. At the bottom of this list, I've enclosed a suitable language list oh. to broaden one's enthusiastic vocabulary. Sincerely, a listener. Is this you, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> I did spruce it up uh, a certain amount, yes. <clears throat> There's this interesting slice of people who find foul language to be pedestrian and the use of certain words to just be you know very to use a modern turn of phrase basic i do appreciate the creativity that he's asking for it reminds me of uh the good place and the fact they can't swear and they're always forking Forking kidding kidding me me. yeah (laughs) Uh, i have to put my thinking cap on well we can get inventive with some swear words okay should we talk about some watchtower weekly uh, watchtower bi-weekly absolutely yes (laughs) bi-weekly We're not doing it twice a week now. Come on. No, don't don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Coronavirus contact tracing world split between two types of app. Uh, this is from the BBC. Over recent weeks, a split has emerged between two different types of app, the so-called centralized and decentralized versions. Both types use Bluetooth signals to log when smartphone owners are close to each other. So if someone develops COVID-19 symptoms, an alert can be sent to other users they may have infected. Do you understand how this works on like a, a, a basic level? Like your phone has an ID and then you walk around and you give your ID to everyone that you kind of bump into. And then when you get ill and then like... Someone verifies that you're ill. It's not just you just press a button that says I'm ill. They download the lists to other people's phones daily. And then kind of all the IDs that you've come into contact with, it looks up the ones that might be ill on, on the phone. So where everything is completely decentralized. That's the model Apple and Google are pushing. The one that the UK government and a couple of other governments, and I think the, the US are doing it by state, which... I mean, as a, as a country, just doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> just, I don't understand the fact that you have ununited states. Uh, don't. Just, just don't. Don't, please. I can't. I can't even. I thought the idea of uniting states was supposed to be, you know, for this kind of stuff, just use one app. It's fine. Anyway. Um, <laughs> just use one app. I thought, I thought the idea of having united states was that you use one app for things like this. Yeah. <laughs> Quote me on that. Why not? But we're definitely not in a position to judge. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. We're we're terrible as an entire country all at once, uh, consistently. Yeah, we are not the United Kingdom, let's face it. I, that's true. Uh, yes. 
England is doing something, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are doing something completely different. So the centralized model is basically it will send all of your information to a server and then that will kind of, you know, decide all the things and then send that about. Obviously, some some governments are choosing to pair that with one location data and two names and phone numbers and email addresses, etc. It gets worse as you kind of go down this slippery slope of having all this information centralized. And, and this is all, of course, kind of in conjunction with real life contact tracing people who are experts in that. This basically just helps them track down people. I think the the centralized version would be okay, kind of. But it seems like the phone hardware isn't actually there. You have to have it open all the time, right? Yeah, you can't keep Bluetooth low energy running in the background. So to go to the shop and keep this app running would be fine. To get back to a normal life where you're going outside and going to the pub and going to all these different places, keeping that running? Possibly not. Um, and, and it seems with Apple and Google being a pretty big deal (laughs) um (laughs) maybe listen to them a bit more also um worth noting the people making the uk version which is called nhsx sounds like a a bad football team (laughs) uh, are the people some of the people that were behind um cambridge analytica so (laughs) i don't know how i feel about that yeah maybe on one hand good because they're good at getting data we, we all know that, but <laughs> may, maybe not. Mm. They've also announced that the data will be kept for research after the crisis ends. Which oh, and you can't opt out, I saw. I don't oh, know, man. It's come on. Yeah, you can't opt out. And Australia and the UK have gone for this like centralised system. But Australia have actually said, no, you know, we, they're going to do the honourable thing. They're going to delete all the data after this whole thing ends, hopefully when it ends. But the UK have just been like, no, we're going to gobble up all that data. Yum, yum, yum. Is that what Boris said? Yeah, just, we're just going to keep it. <laughs> and of course, likely not protect it as well as it should yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. Yeah, diving straight into a deep one today. Yeah. Another interesting thing is that in the UK, who is heading up the, the coronavirus tracing app is uh, Dido Harding, who was uh, in charge of Talk Talk during the uh, during the breach there. I was going to say, that name brings back some <laughs> memories of discussions we've had in the past. Yeah, so her handling of the breach there was kind of notable as being rather terrible and yeah she is now heading up the nhs app doesn't fill you with confidence does it yeah uh so what else are we talking about uh so the eu data protection body says that you cannot have a cookie consent wall and that scrolling is not consent this is in reference to all those banners that we've we've become very used to seeing on websites that says, hey, your data may be collected uh, something, something, something while you browse this website. And you just say, okay, fine, whatever, and you, and you keep going. So there are sites now that are starting to block their content until you say that you consent to give them your data. And that's not allowed, according to the European Union. I think it's quite interesting what they declare as what they see as consent, right? informed consent is supposed to be the kind of the backbone of privacy you are informed about what information that they are going to take what they're going to use it for and perhaps how well they're gonna protect that or or whether they share it with third parties or, or whatever and these are some interesting updates from the eu in terms of like how they want people to to deal with this they've been pretty vague all, all the way along with just like yeah you've got to get consent and just like whatever that means so, of course, people who are making these websites, obviously, 
when you're dealing with something like this, conversion is huge, right? Like if someone isn't acting on the the content that you're giving them, really that content isn't working. So huge numbers of sites are trying to work around what consent is. And so they have, you know, you can still scroll, but at the bottom it says accept cookies or, or whatever. I think they're judging that as being okay because only at the stage where you accept cookies can they lay cookies down, right? <laughs> to use a web technical term, of course. <laughs> but what some places are doing are treating scrolling as that consent. So as soon as you scroll down, you're reading the content, therefore you agree to our cookies. Wow. And that's not presented as a, as a genuine choice of what they're calling it. And neither is accessing the content Situations where there is no possibility to access the content without clicking on the accept cookies button. The data subject is not presented with a genuine choice. It is consent not freely given. That's what they're deciding. So basically, if, if you lay cookies or, or if you put cookies on the machine and no one has pressed accept, that is one thing that they're calling an issue. But the other end of that is if you withhold data so that they can put cookies on your machine. That's another one that they're, they're saying is not a free choice, which I just thought hey, it's kind of cool that they're looking at it from both sides. And yeah, I kind of agree. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to see how companies are trying to push back against GDPR and stuff like that. This is all reported by TechCrunch, by the way. I want to make sure we give credit where credit is due here. Yeah, this, is this to me just comes across as a very natural evolution of companies trying to push the boundaries of what the actual law is here. So... This is going to continue to evolve, and but uh, for my part, I'd very much come down against like implied acceptance of of cookies and stuff like that. Like it, at the end of the day, I probably just click the banner that says "OK" anyway. But still, like you know, don't be slimy about it. They they add another little thing about withdrawing consent being a a, a valid thing as well, which I I think it's incredibly hard to do in most places. Like as soon as you don't want to accept cookies after you've accepted them, it becomes very difficult to get back to that kind of screen where they present you with the options. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I'm wondering, like, from a, an American stance here, how much do you have to deal with this? Because for us, it's on nearly every website the first time you visit. And if you empty your cookies as much as I do for testing and, and stuff like that, it's pretty much every time you visit a site, someone presents you with this option. I see it all the time, and it's just become so normal that I, I almost don't even process it anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Since it's it's not really a, a law for you yet, right? Yeah, it's not something that necessarily impacts me too terribly much, but I think it's just become normal. I think that because of sort of globalization of the economy in general and every company having to comply with GDPR, that many aren't doing region-specific setups they're just complying with gdpr across the board that that is what happens in in most cases one or two like local state based newspapers i find are the ones that don't want to deal with uh gdpr and and so we'll literally just say this is not available in your area mm, very interesting should we talk about the new Firefox offering that's coming out? Yeah, let's go for it. New Firefox service will generate unique email addresses to enter in online forms. And this is reported by ZDNet. So th this is an interesting one. It's very similar to how Apple are dealing with their Apple ID sign in with Apple thing. In the fact that they will generate an email address. You can then use that and they will forward emails from this alias email address to your real inbox. And so I get why they want to do this, but man, this makes me uncomfortable. 
The joy of a username and password is that I have complete control over every element of that, right? When you sign in with Facebook, you're giving away some of that control. When you sign in with something else, you're giving away some of that control to that other service. When you sign in with a, like what will be a, a private relay, this is what it's called, or, or some other element like that, that kind of generates email addresses and then forwards them to your real email, you are basically adding another service in there that could do something in the middle before it gets to you. And like, you know, I, I understand Mozilla are, are fairly trustworthy. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to say completely trustworthy because, you know, you never know. But I don't know. It strikes me as, as these services come across as a massive win. But there is a little bit of like, mm, I am not certain about You're this. You're saying it's kind of the lesser of two evils, really, because I don't know. I would prefer to use this or Apple sign in with Apple than, say, sign in with Facebook or something. And, and realistically, they're not saying that you should use this to sign in with stuff. Right. They are saying that that for this example, this is for things that you don't want to have your email address. Right. So you can you can just turn off that email and, and it will never reach your inbox. So I, I could kind of see it for things that ask for your email address in a kind of dodgy way. You know, please download to download this PDF. We need your email address. Like, well, why do you? You know that 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 type of thing. <laughs> or you take one of those dodgy tests or quizzes online. Yes. Oh, to find out what kind of Harry Potter uh, house you would go in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Find out your results. All that critical information. <laughs> so, it it is an interesting point with this that this is not intended to be similar to like sign in or sign up with apple it, it doesn't sound like this is for for usernames and passwords i mean they can't control how you're going to use this though right it just fills in an email address wherever you want it to very very true gosh i have so many questions about this like at least so i never use these types of services even the apple one like i think it's cool but i want my email address and password like saved in a password manager. And I'm not even saying that as a purveyor of a password manager. Like, I don't like these services because if something happens to the service and it's gone, like it's all of that is gone, which probably won't happen with Apple or Mozilla or Facebook or Google. But the other part of it is that like, I forget what I have accounts for then. If I'm signing in with, with my social all over the place, like how do I even know where, where my accounts exist and, and stuff like that? So, mm. you know, I just don't, I don't use this feature. Yeah, l looking at how... Apple's version of private relay works. It's interesting that they've called this private relay because Apple have called it private email relay service. Hmm. Firefox private relay. Through Firefox private relay, Mozilla hopes to provide an easy to use solution that can let users create and destroy email aliases with a few button clicks. Interesting. I just I'd like to be certain what they're doing with it. I think more people are going to start jumping on this. I I think a, a couple of like obviously this is privacy focused, yeah, and and so is Apple's. So I I think doing this and it coming from a couple of companies that are, are fairly trustworthy, I think it's a good thing, especially for things like email newsletters and things like that. It will forward it until you don't want it to, and they will never have your actual contact details. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this week I had the the pleasure of chatting with Mr. Perry Carpenter, and that was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to him. <laughs> So joining us today is Perry Carpenter. Perry is Chief Evangelist and Strategy Officer at NoB4. He is also the author of Transformational Security Awareness and Essential InfoSec Read, exploring how organizations can shape behavior and build a culture of awareness to stay secure. 
Perry, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I figured to start off, just a little bit of background from you. What inspired you to start writing a book? What's your history? How did you sort of arrive at, at where you are today? Yeah, I've kind of been on a, a trail of working with human behavior and security for almost two decades now, where I realized uh, early on that all of the things that we tend to spend money on with that have blinky lights with respect to security, they're good and they're necessary, but they are also frequently bypassed by cyber criminals who can trick people into uh, making bad decisions that ultimately just work around the intention of that technology. Or you can have a negligent human just accidentally do something that circumvents the intention of that technology. So I was in an organization, a couple of the largest organizations in the world within their respective disciplines and helped shepherd the security programs. And so I had a lot of experience there working with the technology and I saw that the human side was frequently neglected. And then I worked at Gartner advising CISOs around the world about how to build their security programs. And then I saw the same thing again, is that there was this emphasis on technology and all the, the right layers there, but there was an underemphasis and an underappreciation of the human side. And we continued to see breach after breach that it was the humans that were being exploited. And so I really wanted to focus a lot of efforts there and try to figure out how to build up that level of resilience at the human side. So security awareness and security-related behavior became a passion. I had the pleasure of leading security awareness at two large companies. I ran the security awareness research space at Gartner for a number of years, and then I came here to know before. And uh, when I had the space to be able to write about this in a robust way that wasn't just piecemeal research at Gartner. What I really wanted to do was to create the book that I wish that I had 10 years ago that gave all of the, the reasons why security awareness was important, the way that you could actually approach it that would be something that made a real difference rather than just throwing information at people, and then gave all of the jumping off points for the deeper levels of research. And so that's what I was hoping to accomplish with the book. And I think I was able to get pretty close. That's really, really cool. So with like the human element of cybersecurity being so crucial then, and with so many people working from home these days and a lot of things being automated and stuff like that, what do you see as, as the way forward to overcome the challenges and, and make sure that people have the tools and the knowledge that they need? Yeah, I mean, at, at home, we're in a really weird spot right now because working from home right now in the middle of COVID-19, I think is different than working from home in a different time because now people that haven't normally worked from home are in the position where they've been forced to, even if maybe they wanted to before, but it was a disjointed way of getting there. It was a rushed way of getting there and the technology support systems, the processes, the procedures, and even just the mindset of why we're working from home is very different than the standard work from home position or the reasons that, that people might end up there. So in the, the little bit of chaos that's happened that's gotten people where they are, the mindset behind that, I think, has created some distractions, some stress. Of course, there's a lot of fear. There's additional people at home that wouldn't necessarily be there before in standard work from home environments. People aren't getting out of the house. 
and there's this overarching, you know, continual media cycle and quest for more information to fill the what is about to happen next type of thing. And so I, I think that where we are from a work from home perspective is that we have people that are way more vulnerable to cyber attack than they have ever been. Because, uh, again, maybe not all the technology-based supports are there to create a robust cybersecurity ecosystem. And definitely the human mindset is, I think, woefully underprepared for the onslaught of attacks that are coming. You know, in March alone, we saw a 667% increase of phishing emails because cyber criminals are jumping on this thing like crazy because it creates all of the emotional turmoil that phishing emails can really work with because uh, there's a curiosity gap that can be leveraged. There's a lot of knee-jerk reactions and need to fill information. And so all of that comes in and creates a perfect storm for the cyber criminals and makes the innocent person at the other end of the keyboard really, really susceptible. And then there's these other policies that we really like from a security perspective that are hard to enforce at home, like a clean desk policy whether you lock your workstation or not, whether you mix the use of your devices or not, whether you write information on your whiteboard that's visible by other people or not, how you use social media, all of that in this current environment is kind of chaotic. And many of the, the sound principles that we would have tried to embed in people have been disrupted. Yeah, it's so interesting to sort of hear you call a lot of this stuff out. One password being a remote first company anyway, like we already have all the practices in place. And so a lot of it yeah. for, for us as we entered into this world, me in particular, I was like, well, this is just sort of business as usual, except now I have to sort of duck flying Nerf darts when I'm addressing <laughs> the company and stuff like that. Exactly. I mean, it's, and it's been no different for my family as well, because uh, I work from home have for 15 years. My wife does teletherapy at home for kids around the country. And so for us, we've been training for this all of our lives. We just can't go to the grocery store and find toilet paper. <laughs> right, right. Back to, to the point of like people who are not fortunate enough to have been in this position. There's the phishing attacks alone. You know, someone could posing as someone's boss, requesting personal information, that's an easy one. That's low-hanging fruit as far as I'm concerned because people are in this mindset of like, oh, yes, of course they need my personal phone number because now that that's how they're going to have to get a hold of me. So I should absolutely respond to this email and give away that information. Yeah. Or my company's IT desk is going to try to help me set up a new VPN system. Right. You know, all, all of those things are extremely plausible right now. Or it's my HR department and they're going to give me a COVID-19 return to work update. And I need to log in and look at a spreadsheet and see where my wave of return is coming in. Yeah. Yeah. So given all of that, then like, what are some of the best practices that you've established when it comes to creating this, this sort of culture of awareness and, and, and how do you feed those into your security training that, that you give out? So for me, everything comes back to, a few different principles and and these come out in the book and so let me let me just lay out what i call three realities of security awareness and the first one is just because somebody's aware doesn't mean that they care what that really gets into is this thing that i call the knowledge intention behavior gap which is the fact that somebody has information doesn't necessarily translate into them appreciating 
or caring about that information. And even if they appreciate and care about information, that, that doesn't translate into actually performing an action based on the information. And we see this all throughout life. Just because you give me information about something, I might not care. So great example of that is if I'm driving down the street and I see a speed limit sign that says 55 miles an hour, I might not care about that. I might go whatever speed feels right at the time. If I give my kids an instruction about the fact that I want their room cleaned by three o'clock in the afternoon, I've given them information. They just might not care. And the same thing is true for security policies. But then even if we do take that on board and if we do care, we still tend to not act on it. And New Year's resolutions are a great example of that. I might have all the, the information that I need about why I should eat better or exercise more or save more money or spend more time with family, but I tend to make all these little trade-offs. So I have the intention to eat better, but when somebody offers me something that's less healthy, I'll still take it because it feels good at the time or I don't want to offend that person or it's just hard to break a habit. Same thing with all of the security things and decisions that we can have. So that knowledge, intention, behavior gap tends to rule. And so reality of security awareness, number one, is just because I'm aware doesn't mean that I care. Reality number two is if we try to work against human nature, we will fail because just the, the behavior patterns that are dominant in humans will override a lot of other logical things. And then number three is what our employees do is way more important than what they know because knowledge itself has never stopped a breach. It's always action that will either stop or allow a breach to happen. And so for me, everything always comes down to behavior. And I then tend to go to behavior science to try to figure out how best to work with these issues. And there are a lot of great behavior models out there. I tend to land on the fog behavior model, regardless of which model somebody lands on. If they're using a model, at least they're starting to figure out how do I deal with creating behavior interventions and how do I deal with wanting to create promoting pressures to get people to do something or inhibiting pressures to stop them from doing something. And so I very intentionally want to map out behaviors, think of the sub-behaviors that relate to that, and then start to intentionally model around those behaviors. And then, yeah, information will come in and will help supplement some of that. But I want the information to match in with some type of intentional behavior science that I'm adding to the equation. When you're providing training and, and guidance on this type of stuff, I have to imagine that there's a great deal of focus on the repetitive aspects of instilling that behavior. Is this something that yeah. you see has to continue or that, that you see companies putting in place after the training is over? Like, you know, this is every X number of months we have to practice that this is what happens in this situation. These, these are the steps you have to take. This is the behavior that you have to instill in yourself in order to protect yourself from these types of things. Yeah. I always recommend that somebody instill the behavior as often as possible. What this comes back to for me is building muscle memory. And if we want to build muscle memory, we don't just do something once or once a year or once a quarter. What we do when we want to build muscle memory is we do that over and over and over again within short, consistent periods of time. And so for fishing training, which is one of the things that my company focuses on, 
I'm always evangelizing for doing that as frequently as your corporate culture will tolerate, you know, at least once a month and hopefully even more frequently than that. Because if you're only doing fishing testing and training once per year, you're not actually training anything. What you're doing is you're taking a baseline of how bad it is. It's like going to the doctor once a year for your physical and looking at your weight and your blood count and, and everything else. All you're really doing is seeing how bad or, or how good you are at that time. You're not changing anything. If you want to change anything, you have to move from that once a year or once a quarter mindset and get to at least once a month, if not more frequently, so that you're building strength and creating behavior patterns. Because if I want to change my physiology, I don't go to the gym once a year, or once a quarter. I've got to go multiple times a week in order to make a change to me physically. We're working with habits and behavior patterns here. And to change a habit or a behavior pattern, you have to start to build the new thing that you want, not just track how bad it is. Yeah, absolutely. So double-clicking on awareness training a little bit, are there any sort of like fun or unusual techniques that you've found have been useful while while providing this this type of training? On the fishing side, we have to realize that for end users, the feeling of accidentally clicking the training link can be a terrifying experience for some people. They feel caught. Sometimes they can feel tricked or like the company is out to get them or that people are laughing at them on the other side. So fun for me in that context isn't necessarily the fact that I've tricked somebody. Fun for me is finding the safe way to catch them when they do fail. Right. The game for me is setting the tone in the right way so that when somebody falls into the trap that the cyber criminal would, would push them into, but it's actually me on the other side of that, that I help them fail safe and fail where they feel safe and caught at the same time. So it's, it's building all the right information around that and the right landing pages so that when they click on that, they're reassured and hopefully they're put in the best position to feel safe and comforted about the fact that they failed and that we're doing that, we're tricking them for the right reason and that the outcome isn't to shame them. It's actually because we're concerned about them for their good and for the good of the organization. So that for me is a game and how I build those campaigns. The other really fun thing for me is that I do still work on the informational part of this. And one of my favorite formats for information-based training is live action video. And at the company that I'm with, I'm executive producer on a series called The Inside Man. And this is a Netflix style security awareness series that's plot driven across 12 episodes per season, has all the emotional ups and downs of a show like Mr. Robot, great film production quality, great ensemble cast. And so fun for me is seeing the amazement that end users have and security awareness leaders have when they look at that and say, oh, I had no idea that something of this quality was available and that we've somehow created binge-worthy security awareness because that, that doesn't seem to be a thing. But here's the fun thing that I think has happened with this that hasn't happened with anything else that I've heard of. We have companies that have been putting out this series and they've gotten through, let's say, episode nine or 10 of 12. And an end user at that company leaves and they go somewhere else. Well, they've gotten on our website and signed up for a demo. 
and this is you know not security people, these are just end users. Uh, they sign up for a demo, get access to the console, and one of our salespeople call them and they get the end user on the other side and the end user goes, I've got absolutely nothing to do with security, but in my last company, they were showing us this series and I had to know how it ended. <laughs> That's awesome. So you have end users that are that engaged that want to see the end of the story and they're willing to endure a sales call in order to get it done. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is super cool. Uh, I like that a lot. Anna, I'd like you to take a note uh, that we need to create a 1Password original series. Uh, I think that that's the next evolution of, of where we <laughs> need to go. <laughs> that's so, so cool. Okay, so uh, Know Before has created some really incredible phishing tools that help users identify and respond to email threats easier and faster. Can you tell us a little bit more about those, like how they work and, and how they actually help help people? Yeah, the phishing security industry, I think, is one that's been fairly well developed over the past 10 years. And so there were basically three companies that started out. There was uh, what was known as FishMe, there was what was known as Wombat, and then Know Before. FishMe is now known as CoFence, and Wombat was acquired by Proofpoint. Know Before grew a little bit differently because what we did is we looked at a different type of client base. They were looking for very large enterprise, very sophisticated security departments that really already understood a lot of the necessary components of this and then were also willing to invest in some consulting in order to get everything established. And Stu, our CEO, said that he really wanted to focus on small and medium business. And so uh, organizations where you had a security, actually you had an IT professional that was wearing about 60 different hats and having to put out a lot of different fires every day that didn't have the time to understand all the nuance related to security awareness and didn't have time to set up a complex product. And so ease of use, ease of deployment, and no consulting were the things that Stu really wanted to focus on. And then at a price point that was undeniable for the, the quality and the, the value that was there. And so that was the focus. So all of our tools from the way that we assign information-based campaigns to the way that we create phishing campaigns have to be dead easy to use and understand. And that's how we've gotten to over 32,000 client organizations around the world right now. Now, the thing that's unique about us is that we have thousands upon thousands of pre-established phishing templates that people can choose in addition to creating their own if they want. We also have a vibrant community of organizations that are creating their own templates and those can be shared out if they want. So there's lots of choice for pre-created phishing templates in addition to, to creating your own. But that doesn't mean that you have to go and individually choose all those templates if you don't want to. If you don't have time to wade through those or find the perfect templates for your organization, you can set the system to pick a random template or pick a random template within a domain. Say, oh, well, I want a financial services template, you know, one that's acting like a bank or a retail template. It's acting like a retail store, like an you know Amazon or Walmart.com or something. Or I want to simulate BEC, or you know, pick your your genre. And you might not even want to pick the time. You might want to set times that the system will pick 
that correlate with the way that cyber criminals might pick a time. So being able to gamify all of that is really nice too, because we get the, the true metric of what's going on and we can start to play this game of now that we know where we are, how do we shift the organization to where it needs to be? And then again, how do we do that in a way that has the empathy that I think is necessary in order to keep your employees on board and not feeling victimized through this type of process. Yeah, that's that's really, really cool. So we touched a little bit on the human side and and, and how awareness is, is really important. What can businesses do these days to make sure that, that employees are, are actually safe? The key for that with me is intentionally setting up an awareness program that accounts for the realities of human nature that thinks to the fact that humans are, they're not only reactive in the way that they deal with fishing, but they're also very emotional in the way that they interact with the world around them. And so I always want to be aware of the fact that humans have feelings. They're, they're not robots. And so when we throw policies in front of them, we're not necessarily accounting for that aspect of it. So we have to give them a reason why they should care about the policy, why they should read it in the first place. And then we also have to account for the fact that even when they should care about the policy and they should read it at the moment of behavior, when it actually counts, all of that's probably going to go out the window. And so I need to build a robust ecosystem around them that accounts for that. And that includes some of the technology layers. And that also includes some of the behavior management layers that could be wrapped into a robust security behavior program. And I'll, I'll give you a, a good example of that. One of the things that I touch on in the book and uh, a way that I typically end a presentation is talk about designing for the reality of human nature. So at all times, if I'm creating a behavior management program, I'm thinking about the ability to do the behavior, the motivation to do the behavior, and how I'm prompting somebody to do the behavior. That's, in essence, the Fogg behavior model, is that B.J. Fogg says behavior happens when three things come together at the same time. The ability to do it, the motivation to do it, and a prompt asking somebody to do it. Well, if we take what you specialize on, which is passwords, and we think about the fact that most end users are having to manage upwards of 200 passwords, 200 accounts now. How many people, how many humans have the ability to create and remember 200 good unique passwords that aren't somehow algorithmically based or predictable within their minds? I don't, I don't think that anybody that I know could create and remember 200 strong good passwords that are totally unique, that are not shared across accounts and so on. So I think that there's an ability factor that just can't be met. So at that point, we're already working against the reality of human nature. And even if somebody mentally could jump through all the hoops to do that, how many people would have the motivation to do that? And how often would they be prompted in the right way to do that? So building the right behavior pattern around it is... I would say it's as near to impossible as impossible can get. I can get somebody to create five or 10 good passwords and remember those. So what that argues for then is a way to increase their ability. And I can't increase it just through training because memory can still only do so much. And 
the reality of human nature is that somebody's going to be pushed into creating a password at a time that's inconvenient for them to create and remember a good password. So I'm dealing with all those factors. Well, then the, the only way to do it is to help facilitate it. I can make the behavior easier or I can make it smaller according to the behavior model. And the way to do that is essentially, well, bring in a password manager, like one password that will facilitate it and do it for them. And that can create and remember, you know, a virtually infinite amount of good, strong passwords for somebody. And they've got one or maybe a couple that they actually have to, to remember on their own. That's much more manageable. And even if an organization says, I don't want the password manager to deal with all 200 because I've got a couple critical accounts that I just don't want to trust to any third-party system. Well, if 195 are taken off that person's plate, that's a great place to be. And at that point, you can hold that person responsible for it. Yeah, absolutely. So finally, could you give us like three main takeaways when it comes to security awareness or, or just sort of your, your top security tips in general? Yeah, my top security tips, I think, would come back to those three realities. So if I had three takeaways, it would probably end up being those things is just because we give information to people doesn't mean that they're going to care about it. If we try to work against the way that humans are designed to work and that we naturally behave, we're going to be really, really frustrated as security leaders because people don't fall into these nice, clean little buckets that we hope that they'll fall in. If Just because I, I give somebody information doesn't mean that they're going to adopt the right behaviors and beliefs. They're not. They're, they're going to be shaped by all the contextual factors around them, their upbringing, individual trade-offs that they make at the time, and so on. So I have to account for human nature. And then ultimately, um, it's what our people do that matters. And so I always need to be building behavior into the way that I do that. So I need to be looking at those ability factors. And is this, you know, is it reasonable for somebody to be able to do the things that I'm asking them to do? Or can I help facilitate that? Can I make the behavior easier or smaller uh, in some way? Um, or can I help increase the motivation wherever possible? And then how do I build that in a robust and sustainable way that has all the executive buy-in and cultural support within the organization that I'm going to need in order to carry this forward two, three, five years down the road? And so all of those things come into it. And that, that last piece that I mentioned, that executive support and buy-in and culture support within your organization is critical and cannot be forgotten because we as security people can't do this on our own. Um, we have to have that. And uh, we can't be fighting that battle as we're trying to work with our employees. We need to go through as a unified front and help our employees be everything that they can be from a security perspective so that we can be that trusted advisor to them in the organization and that they can fail safe when they fail because I would rather somebody fail a simulation and fail safe than at the time that it actually matters and the cyber criminal is doing something that they fail and it ended up costing the organization. So I want to build that really safe place for people so that we can ultimately train the right reflexes. Yeah, absolutely. 
Perry, just to close out today, where do you want people to go to learn more about uh, Know Before or you, follow you online, anything, any any sort of shout outs that you want to drop? Here? Yeah, I guess I'll give three shout outs. One is uh, Know Before. So if you're interested in the security awareness platform that we have and all that we've got going on, and we do have a ton of free tools as well that are just made for IT admins, go to knowbefore.com. We also have a, a frequently updated blog that has a ton of great information at blog.knowbefore.com. Then second is uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, and I'm pretty easy to find there. And if you're interested in the book, I go into everything from communication theory to behavior management to culture management and all the executive stuff that you need in order to create a robust program. And you can find the book uh, Transformational Security Awareness anywhere fine books are sold, but these days online, right? Very nice. And then one last question I'll ask, where can people go to see the inside man? Where can they go to sign up for a sales call so that they can they can watch the inside man? <laughs> yeah, go to knowbefore.com slash inside man. So we do have a random act of kindness giveaway. Uh, and that is still ongoing. Apparently. Yeah, it closes May 25th and we'll be announcing on the next episode. So there's still time to enter. You just got to use the Ask One Password hashtag and recommend somebody who you think needs one password. It's just a little random act of kindness. Hopefully make someone's day, you know. Nice. So you format that tweet with Ask One Password and then like at the person that you want to get the yeah. account. Nice. Do you know who needs one password, actually? Um, Everybody. Yeah, okay. Everybody needs one password. <laughs> I mean, unless you already have one password, and that's that's kind of I mean, you could it. always upgrade your account, but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can get someone else to pay for it for you. All right, Anna, I'm going to ace this this real or not yeah. real this week. Let's, let's get into it. Okay, if you ate a new variety of apple every day, it would take more than 20 years to try them all. Real or not real? That's correct. Yep, absolutely real. There's got to be a, a lot of varieties of apple, isn't there? Like, we've got enough apples in the world. <laughs> That's just a statement. Car- carpet blanket Name statement. Name a few, Matt. Go on. I eat pink ladies. <laughs> I, don't like, I, don't like any, I don't like any other type yeah, of apple. I'm with you on that one. They are the superior type of apple. They really are. Have you ever yeah. had a Snapdragon? A Snapdragon? Mm. What's a Snapdragon? Snapdragons are fantastic. How about a Macallan? Oh, I've not heard of these. Oh. Are you just making these up, Rue? I am 100% not making these up. These are some of my favorite apples. <laughs> I like a good Granny Smith. New York State has some of the best varieties of apples you'll you'll ever have. I really do like only pink ladies. There's some apples that you bite into and just kind of disintegrate and then turn into like, yeah. I don't know, like cotton mm. candy. I like an apple that has a really good, that like you can, you can sort of, pop off a whole section of it like it's it's a it's like a really sh- sharp sort of bite oh uh, it's like crisp yes it's very crisp like it, it it there's no mush to it like you can you like if you just dig your teeth into one section of it and pull back you can pop a whole section of the apple right off that's what i'm talking about like that is mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Okay, so we've got on a bit of a ramble about apples, but this is true. You were right. So it would take you more than 20 years to try each of the 7,500 varieties of apples in the world. Wow. And they're making new ones all the time. Yeah. So it could go on for decades, like just trying apples. I wonder how many have been lost to time. Like the original banana. Ooh, the original banana. Let's not start the berry banana debate again. <laughs> oh, there's no debate. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that's all we've got time for. Love you guys. Love you. Love you too. Bye. 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 Bye.